0: That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said.
1: Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures.
0: I'm Woody Page, and my dilemma is, uh, I don't like stainless steel. What do I do? About all the appliances I've had the last 10 years since I don't care anything about stainless steel.
1: Well, I'm a stainless steel gal myself, but you're not alone in wondering if that look has sort of peaked. Of course, the easiest option is to replace the appliances with new ones in a different style or maybe a color. Maybe that retro mint green that was popular when you peaked. If you don't want to shell out for new stuff, you might be SOL. Of course, that is, unless you're open to wallpapering the existing appliances with your best Denver Post columns, the sort of papier-mâché-style covering that would certainly be on brand for a lifetime newspaper man like yourself. Or, and this is my vote, get that sticky back chalkboard paper and then line the appliances with that, and that would allow you and your loved ones, friends, family, your lady friend to cover your kitchen with their own chalkboard witticisms. is you could stop stealing those chalkboard witticisms from all the dad joke books that you buy and instead just steal them from your friends and family. I kid, I kid. Of course, all the stuff on your chalkboard is 100% yours. Uh, just in case. Good option to have. You're welcome. The commission has spoken. Hey, if you like this content, you might like my radio show, Spain and Company, 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern every weeknight. And if you don't catch it live, you can catch some of our best segments on the Twitter feed at Spain and Company. Be sure to go follow it and check it out.
0: Well, that's what she said.
1: This week's guest is my chalkboard toting around the horn friend slash nemesis Woody Page. He was a columnist for the Denver Post for 35 years, currently writes for the Gazette out of Colorado Springs. He is both the winningest and losingest panelists ever on Around the Horn, and he claims to have attended over 10,000 sporting events. In typical Woody Page fashion, the conversation sort of meanders at times. In fact, I think he challenged Tony Rialli for most words by a guest to the fewest questions by yours truly. In fact, we had to edit it down for about an hour and a half. But the good news is what we got and what you're going to hear is worth it. We get into how growing up in the South affected his worldview, how his marriage to a future Rolling Stone editor led him into sports, becoming a beach bum before finding his way back to the newspaper, Colin J. Mariotti Richard, the suicidal thoughts that plagued him before he got the right diagnosis, and how being the silly uncle is not really how he wants to be seen. This is good stuff. Hope you enjoy my convo with Woody Page.
0: That's what she said.
1: So happy to have my around-the-horn friend Woody Page on the show and get to dig in to a lengthy career uh that is uh taking new twists and turns at all times. You're going to hear about a new project that he's got in the works. But I want to start, Woody, way back when. And I read that you were already writing for a local newspaper when you were still in high school. So this means that from a very young age, you already knew what you wanted to do.
0: Yes, from seven. <laughs> it's hard to believe. <laughs> The second grade teacher came to me at uh, Cherry Creek uh, Elementary School and said, I want you to write the second grade news for the elementary school paper. And I was—I felt as honored as I am today to be on here with you. And so I wrote the second grade news and it came out. I wrote about a new fishbowl we had with two goldfish in it and I gave them names. And so the mimeographed newspaper came out and it said second grade news by Woody Page. And people in the class who boys and girls who had never talked to me said, you got this? And I thought, well, gee, this could be something really good in my life. (laughs) So I I taught myself how to type. I bought a book that was like $2 out of whatever money I was getting. We were a very poor family. And I taught myself how to type on a piece of cardboard. And I think it was three or four years later that uh, my parents bought me uh, a small blue uh, portable typewriter that I used until I was covering the ABA, because it was so meaningful to me. But in high school, I was uh, sports editor of a weekly newspaper. And I think my story is typical of, of a lot of people in the business. Bill Plasky and i talked about it, Tim Callishaw that that uh, started uh, with the original Around the Horn, that uh, we grew up wanting to write. And, and I think being in the South, I was so attracted to writers uh, that uh, interested me when I was a kid. And I loved to read and write. And I spent a lot of time at the library, and, and uh, there was a book by a guy, How to Write Without Knowing Nothing, and that was the <laughs> title of it, and I checked it out, and I read it, and I thought, well, this fits me, and that really was the case that uh, when I was in high school, and I told the story on Around the Horn not long ago, because we talking about somebody not being able to discuss themselves, and, and I hit an American Legion ball. I hit the winning home run, and uh, it was my job to write a story about it and I left me out of the story (laughs) and uh, (laughs) that's not true with my columns I usually put me in my columns but uh, it it was really what my dilemma was at the time is because I wanted to be a bad boy for the Yankees I wanted to be the next Bob Cousy I wanted to be a rock and roll star and I wanted to be a writer and none of those really worked out very well. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, one of them did, thankfully. Um You're my second guest in as many weeks. That grew up in Memphis and went to University of Tennessee. Paul Feinbaum was was uh, my most recent. He's about 10 years younger than you. But Paul Feinbaum, because of what he does, is so closely associated with the South. And because you spent so long in Denver, I've never really thought of you as a Southern guy. Growing up and and spending time in Memphis and in Tennessee. Did you feel and do you still feel like a a typical kind of southern guy or or, or raised on southern ideals?
0: I think so, on certain southern ideals, And, and I think it gave me direction in regard to southern ideals that maybe people wouldn't appreciate. I know Paul and I never were in school together, but I know that when he came along, that the athletic department officials said, whatever you do, don't be like Woody Page, because <laughs> I was considered incorrigible at, at Tennessee. I was editor of the Daily Newspaper, and, and the head of the School of Communications uh, at one point fired me and hired me back about five days later. Mm-hmm. So Paul and uh, Gino, who you know out of Chicago, uh, also was a prominent journalist at the University of Tennessee, and there have been a few others, but it's not known for – being a great school that produces writers or broadcasters. And I told my dad at one point uh, when I was in high school that I wanted to go to Columbia School of Journalism in New York. And he told me that I had about as much chance as he did of becoming a jet pilot. And so Mm -hmm. that kind of entered my dreams. (laughs) I went to Tennessee and I actually, I was in Memphis about three weeks ago. Uh, a, A cousin died, who was one of my favorites. And so I spent a few days there, and I don't spend much time in Memphis, but I can remember distinctly my dad, who died in his 40s, and he spent a year, he was a diabetic, he spent a year as a kid uh, in a hospital that overlooked a baseball park, and sat in the window and watched baseball, and this would have been in the uh, early 30s during the Depression. And so he would take me to that ballpark, and I remember saying to him, why do they make uh, and this was a term of that period if you were not being racist why do they make the colored people sit out left field and my dad I was seven or eight years old and I think that was my first realization of racism in the south and he said it's a real shame he said they don't want them to sit with white folks is what he said and I said why and he said because they think they're different and they're not as good as white people. And that formed, I think my direction and my belief system more than anything, growing up in the South about the inequities and studying the history, which I still do. And, and touring, uh, to give you an idea about the South it, 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 on senior trips around the country in high school, uh, students go to Washington, DC, or they go to maybe Niagara Falls. Our school, uh, which was called White Haven, oddly enough. We were taken to uh, Shiloh, which is known for being uh, a major battle during the Civil War that was won by the South. And all the discussions about sculptures and what's going on, it, it comes back to me of that's what was chosen for us to go see in high school to celebrate what the South did in the Civil War. And at the time, I don't think it, anybody was glorifying the South, but it was kind of like that's the place that they chose to take us rather than to go to the state capitol in Nashville or something like that. It just kind of showed you what the mores and what the feeling was in the South when I was growing up there in the, in the 50s and, and even in shortly into the 60s.
1: What did you study at the University of Tennessee?
0: I, I majored in uh, journalism because I wasn't very smart, and I minored in education. <laughs> I really wanted to teach.
1: So you'd given up most... on, on the writing thing at this point, or you weren't sure if that was still your priority?
0: No, it was, it was my priority, but I wanted to teach writing in high school. And honestly, I was drafted for, the story you don't hear, but I, I was drafted out of college, and I told my dad I'm going to Vietnam and I'm going to die and he said, well, that's a real optimistic attitude. <laughs> and I said, well, I can write about it. And I was rejected for health reasons, which really weren't that important. It was sort of like uh, someone having bone spurs.
1: Right, But I was, right. At, I
0: was at a camp, and they kept me there for a week, and they finally said, you're not eligible. And so I applied to teach uh, high school English at a school. I had done that before I was drafted, and, and instead, I went to a newspaper in Memphis. I had worked for a daily newspaper, Doxell, Tennessee, while I was in college, and I went to the newspaper in Memphis, and they actually hired me, and my goal was to be Mike Royko. <laughs> <laughs> That's really what I wanted to be. I wanted to be Jimmy Breslin. I wanted to be Mike Royko. My dream as a young writer was to go to New York and be a general columnist and sit at the Algonquin Round Table. Which I don't know would be that clear to most people listening to the podcast. Are you familiar with it? I'm not. When you go to New York, and I recommend this to everybody, there's a hotel that's on the uh, National Historic Ledger, and it's the Algonquin Hotel. And starting in the, around 1919, a group of critics and writers and actors would gather every day for lunch at the Algonquin Hotel, and it became very famous as the. Uh, the group that would come there and they would trade witticisms and it's sort of, it's going to sound strange. It's kind of what we do on around the horn on a daily basis. They would do sarcasm at each other. wit. Uh, Dorothy Parker was like a major force in the Algonquin round table discussions and uh, Alexander Wolcott, Harper marks, a lot of New York critics and, Whenever I go to New York, I still go. There's a rose room there. And that really kind of set the tone. Dorothy Parker uh, left there and went to L.A. and became a screenwriter and wrote A Star is Born, the original adaptation of A Star is Born. So her words are still living in in the movie that came out, what, last year? Uh, So that was kind of my dream as a kid, reading about the Algonquin and the witticisms. And she was famous for saying... uh, Men don't make passes that women make wear glasses. And mm-hmm. she, was, she was really sarcastic as she was being that way. But she said, two martinis is my limit. If I have a third, I'm under the table. If I have a fourth, I'm under the host.
1: <laughs> nice.
0: <laughs> I wanted to grow up being that. and that. And actually, that's kind of what we do, As we're sarcastic at each other every day. And, yeah. and whether it's facetious sarcasm or whether it's uh, real. People have to figure that out, but uh, I think we're kind of doing what uh, what was going on, and, and I recommend to everybody, if you read the book about the Algonquin Hotel and the people, for it, it lasted for about 15 years where people go there for lunch every day, and crowds would come in just to sit beyond the table listen, to hear them.
1: That's really cool. Yeah. Um, So while you're at University of Tennessee, you're studying journalism and teaching, and you were in Lambda Chi Alpha, which I can absolutely picture Woody Page, the fraternity brother. Do you have a great fraternity memory that you can share on the podcast that won't be um, either offensive or entirely censored?
0: Well, I should mention I went back and spoke to the national uh, fraternity. They gave me their highest award, which I can't believe, in company with Harry Truman. And I was stunned by that. But the chapter that I was a member of at the University of Tennessee was kicked off campus about three years ago permanently.
1: (laughs) That's been happening a lot more of late.
0: Part of me, when I was in school, as I said, I was concentrating on learning how to write. And I didn't find that journalism was giving me that. And that's why I had problems with not only my advisor, but the head of the department, because I didn't show up at many classes. I was too busy writing columns for the daily newspaper. And then I was named editor. And the head of the department called me in and he said, you have a unique talent, but you're you're never going to accomplish much. And I said, I think you're wrong because I'm going to graduate with 40, 50 others, and we're going to go all apply for the same job. And I'm going to be the one that's different because I'm unique. And if you talk to Paul, and Paul, I've been on Paul's show before, that Paul was a unique talent in college and see how much he's accomplished. Uh, I can't put myself in that category, but... Anyway, in regard to the fraternity, and I was reading something about fraternities in the last few days. They've really outlived their usefulness. But I was, you said it, I was a typical fraternity guy, except that it wasn't a priority for me, my, my writing. And I wrote a daily column a school newspaper, and circulation was circulation about 26,000 at the time. And I concentrated on that. And what I found was I was writing about my fraternity life. I'd write a column that would say, what are the odds, Sarah, of on a Thursday night before I had a date with one young lady on Friday night and a date with another young lady on Saturday night, that on Thursday night, both their grandmothers died. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, what is that? And I wrote a whole column about that. My column was, come up with better excuses. I mean, (laughs) one of those young ladies, I think that was her fifth grandmother that died on me. (laughs)
1: uh, so I, I actually had, had, a, I had I was, a grandma die on me when I was trying to break up with someone, and the first thing he said when he got to lunch was how upset he was at his grandma, and I'm like, duh, can't do it today.
0: <laughs> That's the worst excuse in the world, and so I had listed a bunch of of excuses that you could tell a, a guy, but I, I – I found it an interesting aspect of uh, the growth of my life. And when I've spoken at the national convention, I've told them the the bonding, the camaraderie, it's what I hear. And you hear it from athletes all the time. When they retire, they don't talk about, well, I'll miss the game. or I'll miss uh, hearing the crowd. I've heard this over and over again for 60 years. I'll miss my camaraderie with my teammates. And I think that's whatever form that takes for somebody whether it's uh, in a fraternity or sorority, as I said, I think they've outlived their usefulness, but with a football team or, and you played sports, I mean, what did you miss most about it? Competing, but you also miss being around your fellow athletes. And I think that that brought me into a world of, of at least having a lot of instant friends, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're on a campus, I was 400 miles from home, I, didn't really know anybody. I I wasn't grown. I wasn't mature. And suddenly there's like 120 guys that are close friends. So I think that served a purpose. Do I have any funny stories? I have a lot of them. I can't tell you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll move on then. We'll be right back with more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Finding a new job is a lot of work. What if you had your own personal recruiter to help you find a better job? Now ZipRecruiter's technology can do that for you. Just download the ZipRecruiter job search app, let it know what kind of jobs you're interested in, and its technology starts doing the work. The ZipRecruiter app finds jobs you like and puts your profile in front of employers who may be looking for someone like you. If an employer likes your profile, ZipRecruiter lets you know. So if you're interested in the job, you can apply. No wonder ZipRecruiter is the number one rated job search app. And based on a third-party survey, 7 out of 10 people who found a new job on ZipRecruiter increased their salaries. These were the results of a 2017 U.S. survey of over 500 ZipRecruiter users who got hired for a job they found on ZipRecruiter. My listeners should download the free ZipRecruiter job search app today and let the power of technology work for you. Don't wait. The sooner you download the free ZipRecruiter job search app, the sooner it can help you find a better job. That's what she said. So you graduate, and um, you take a couple different jobs that are local, Knoxville Journal, Commercial Appeal of Memphis, and then you end up at the Rocky Mountain News of Denver before the Denver Post. What brought you out to Denver? And at the time, did you intend to stay? Did it feel like a place that you wanted to set up roots?
0: You have to kind of go back. I told you earlier that I wanted to be like Mike I wanted to, I wanted to be somebody that could change the way things were happening. Jimmy Breslin and his son of Sam coverage and Mike Royko going after city officials and finding the uh, criminal activities that were going on in government. And that that's really what I was dreaming of being. It was not to be a sports columnist. I had done that some in college and for the wiki paper, but I was generally aiming to be a columnist who could actually motivate people. And at the Knoxville Journal, I covered politics and police activities and actually rode around the car with a police radio in it and thought I was somebody special. So I, I was covering civil rights in the South. I covered marches in Alabama, and I covered uh, the uh, aftermath of the assassination of Dr. King. And that was the direction I was going. And I got married to a young lady named Carolyn White. And I mentioned her name because uh, at some point in the conversation, someone listening to this will know who she is. Carolyn White and I got married because in the South, you're talking about being raised differently. People didn't live together. That was not part of the religious. I was a Southern Baptist and so was she. And you couldn't really live together. So we've we been together for six months. She had graduated uh, from the University of Memphis with a degree in journalism. And I got her a job before I even met her at the Commercial Appeal because they were looking to hire more young, outstanding women journalists. And we got married and they told us that we both couldn't work at the commercial appeal because of our marriage. One of us is going to have to leave. And I said, well, we really need the money. We were expecting about $4,800 a year at that time. People think about it. That was about $95 a week and we really need that money starting out in our marriage. And they said, well, the only way we can make this work is move you to the sports department that's on another floor. We just had a columnist leave. Why don't you go over there? You want to be a, a, a daily columnist, a general columnist. Why don't you go over there and prove to me you'd be a columnist? So I went to sports and I started writing a column. And he said, Come back in a year and let's see how you're doing. Well, in less than a year, Kellen and I got divorced. And the reason why I say I mention her name is she went on to be the editor of Rolling Stone magazine and uh, oh, wow. top editor in Philadelphia. And she was editor of National Geographic. And she married a guy that I'm sure you've heard of, Richard Ben Kramer who died Uh not long ago. And so she really traded up because he won a Pulitzer Prize. (laughs) So we were married six months and, you know, there's some kidding about my marriages on the round of horn, but she was a brilliant young journalist and we both were really on paths to actually accomplish it. So I, I became a sports columnist because they wouldn't let us both work there doing what we were doing. She was covering politics and I was too. And so At the end of the year, I go back and talk to the editor, and I said, uh, have I proven that I can be a general columnist? He said, stick with what you're doing. And so I kind of fell into it without really wanting to do it, and shortly after that, because of my style of writing, not that I was a great writer, but I had a unique viewpoint, I started getting uh, offers from Atlanta and Philadelphia and Boston and the New York Daily News, and I decided to take the one in Denver because I thought, boy, I can go to Denver and have the kind of influence that I don't think I could have in Philadelphia or Boston or right. New York. And so I came to Denver, and except for some time off for good or bad behavior, I was in New York with East Bend for about three years. And at the age of 40, I took a year and a half off to figure out the, what to do with the rest of my life. Otherwise, i have been here, and there was a great newspaper. It was one of the last great newspaper wars. Uh, Chicago had one, New York of course had, had one, but Denver had an incredible newspaper war. And one day I was working for the Rocky Mountain news and the next day I was working for the Denver post. Hmm. uh, So I've been a sports columnist here for over 40 years, except that I took, uh, after 1984, a new editor came in and, uh, I said, I want, I've only wanted to be a general columnist. So I was a general columnist for seven years. In the late '80s, and when I turned 40, as I said, I took a year and a half off and moved and became a beach bum. And I heard you talking to Kate. You had Kate Fagan on, and she talked about you know, changing careers and mm-hmm. moving on. I kind of did that. I, I I went to uh Naples, Florida, and I ran on the beach every day, and I wrote a couple of books, and and I was trying to figure out what I was supposed to do the rest of my life, and where it was going to take me. And I ended up deciding that what I liked most was actually writing a sports column that it fit my style of writing. My, I never really uh, pulled off being a general columnist cause I approach everything in sports with a light flair. I mean, I can be very critical and I can be very sarcastic, but I don't treat it like it's the name. My corporation is rocket surgery. Because mm-hmm. I'm not a brain surgeon, and I'm not a rocket scientist. And that's the way I kind of treat things in my life. So came back and went back to, to doing sports, and I've continued to do it. But I've covered, for the paper, I've covered Columbine. I've covered the Aurora shootings. They've asked me to do columns on that. I covered, they sent me, I was the only writer from Denver that went to New York for 9-11. And so I still touch upon serious subjects I guess to prove to myself that I could have been something other than just a silly sports writer.
1: Was there and any fear 90- when you got to Denver that your association with the city and the place and the sports history wasn't solid enough? You've been there such a long time now that people associate you with those teams in that place. But did you feel comfortable taking over a sports beat when you had intended to do straight you know, news and, and general commentary?
0: I really didn't have a deep history of of Colorado. Sports translates. And to be truthful, Denver at that time didn't have much. They had a bad Broncos team. They barely had an ABA basketball team. They had uh, minor league hockey, and they had no baseball. My first column was, your team sucks. Broncos suck. I turn them off when they come on television. Nobody cares about them. They're the worst team, one of the worst teams in all of football. And I wrote this really damning column of the Denver Broncos, who everybody in Denver loved. And the next day I got a call from uh, the PR director of the Broncos saying, Coach Ralston, John Ralston was the coach said wants to see you this afternoon. And I said, well, I'll be in my office at 3 o'clock. He said, no, he expects you to be in his office at 3 o'clock. And I thought, well, this is kind of interesting. So I went out there and I went in his office and he said, uh, young man, I just want to tell you, you may do this kind of stuff in New York City, but that's not going to work in Denver. Everybody mm-hmm. here gets behind the team. And he was right. The TV shows would say, well, our Broncos tried hard, but lost 54-7 to yesterday. <laughs> and they referred to them as our Broncos and our Nuggets or whatever it might be, our Colorado Buffaloes. And people assumed i come from New York or Philadelphia, that they, they couldn't picture some nice Southern boy coming out to Denver and ripping on their team. And what I found happened is that about half the people – Went, yeah, we need somebody to be honest about our teams. And the other half went, you know, go back to where you came from. And it didn't take long. I mean, without a baseball team, which I think you must have to be, people talked about it. Who considers Cincinnati a major league city? Everybody, because it has a major league baseball team. But nobody considered Denver a major league city because it didn't have baseball. Baseball associates you with being a major city, no matter... What the city might be like. I mean, Denver, until it got a Major League Baseball franchise in the early 90s, uh, wasn't considered a Major League city. Really wasn't even considered it then because people thought that uh, from Max Kellerman, who was the first host of Around the Horn, he asked me if I lived on a farm. People think of Colorado (laughs) until recently. uh, They had one thought of Colorado. Well, it's in the middle of nowhere and you go skiing. Well, now there's an entirely different attachment to Colorado. Weed. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I have a theory. I'm going to write a column about this, but I'm going to unveil it to you. I genuinely believe that the NFL won't bring the draft to Denver. It's been passed over three times now because of marijuana. I think it's totally about that because they had a great presentation. Denver is a great city to come to with the mountains and all of the, the attractions that are here. I don't think the NFL wanted to be connected to that in any way. Because the commissioners talked recently about, uh, in a press conference, about how they're approaching marijuana. Oh, we're addressing it. We're studying it. He's trying to put it off as long as he possibly can. Well, it hit me then. Why Nashville instead of Denver? Nashville's a nice city. I mean, I grew up in Tennessee. Chicago? Yeah. Great city. Great city. But why not Denver? Uh, And they passed over. They're going to put it in Kansas City. Why not Denver? You can't ever put a Super Bowl here because of the weather. Well, it's totally the reason they're not going to say it, but totally this is the reason is that because Colorado now is, even though so many other states are now opening themselves to uh, recreational marijuana, Colorado's attached to it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it'll like-
1: be interesting to see when it opens up in other states if that if that affects their decision making. But it's interesting talking to you a week after having Finebaum, mom, because your, your similarities in growing up in Memphis and going to University of Tennessee. He talked about arriving at you know, SEC country and criticizing coaches and teams and that no one was doing that. People were just sort of pretty mild in their criticism. It feels like even though you're 10 years older, that's that's so common now, maybe because with 24-hour sports news, you always need to say something. You also need to differentiate yourself from all the other talking heads. So having strong opinions is one way to do it. Um Was there any part of you that was concerned about being shut out for access or – about people not liking the tone or approach that you took, if most people there were, were more flowery in their approach?
0: I think Paul and I will share this, even though, again, we weren't in school at same time. I never considered it being negative or having a strong opinion. This goes back to your original question. I was being honest. That's what I was taught to be, was to be honest. And I still believe that. I don't, I don't make up opinions on around a horn that, you know, if we're having a silly subject you know, about beer landing in somebody's popcorn or something, it doesn't matter. But when it's a serious subject, you've been on enough conference calls to know when I'm passionate about a subject and I'm not making up opinions. And I never did. When I came here, I was being genuine. Your team sucks. And I think that's what Paul experienced. And, and we all did. Sports writing had an entirely different tone. If you go back 50, 60 years, the columnist of the day, would Hale Bruin and and the others in in new york that were famous never went to a a locker room they never talked to the players they just gave their opinion that all changed with what were called the squirrels and that was a group of journalists uh, sports journalists in new york in the 70s that kind of wrote in the same tone as breslin about sports and they started criticizing those teams in your city and i've heard i know you've heard this story that supposedly Babe Ruth in the World Series pointed to center field and then hit the ball there because he was so pissed at the, the Cubs. Well, nobody ever asked him after a game because nobody ever went to the clubhouse. <laughs> we don't know whether it's a true story or not. It's because nobody ever went to the locker room. They didn't talk to the players. They just wrote about games. They'd write 3-1 yesterday. Or they'd say the team's pretty good, it's not good. Yeah. Who interviewed Lou Gehrig on the day of Uh, the most famous speech in the history of baseball. Nobody, nobody interviewed him. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody interviewed him. They just wrote, it was a great ceremony. So I think Paul and I share that Southern trait. If you think about writers and those that came out of the South and and one of my favorite writers, this might surprise you, Harper Lee, who wrote To Kill a Mockingbird, Mm -hmm. she was an incredible Southern writer and she only wrote like three books in their entire career. And the great writers that came out of the South, they were honest about their surroundings, Tennessee Williams, of whether or not their surroundings were good or bad. They, did, they didn't pull punches about what was going on in the South since the end of the Civil War. And, and, and I think we were taught to be honest. I, I've always told people, and I'm going astray, that the biggest uh, civil rights problems in this country were in parts of the East. <laughs> Where people weren't honest about their feelings, right? Where it was—it's just- a tough, a tough position to defend. But I do think that we were taught to be honest. People said to this got us, I'm saying us Southerners, we got into problems. But my mother died two years ago. She never lied to anybody. If she didn't like you, she'd tell you, "I don't like you." <laughs> it didn't matter. Right, well, it seems it like is.
1: that the honesty in, in sports is certainly. Um, There's a difference, I think, between being honest and then willing to pull punches because you are concerned about whether, you know, the people in that city are going to respond positively and negatively. The people that you're covering are going to continue to give you access and and all that. So it certainly sounds like you I mean, you mentioned before that you didn't want it to just be you wanted it to be lighthearted at times, but you also wanted to give your honest opinion. You wanted to, to be able to cover things that were a little different um, than sports at times. And, you know, you had some opportunities throughout to, to combine things. And one of them was when the Broncos receiver, Kenny McKinley passed away. It was a sports story, but you brought yourself into it and your own thoughts of suicide. When you did something like that, that was so personal and that offered yourself up with such vulnerability, was there a fear in people viewing you differently? Was there a fear in being honest about that time in your life?
0: No, not really. Uh, it was a response. People were saying, why would he kill himself? He had everything. He was a professional football player. He had money. He was young. He had a great life. Why would he do it? And I thought I could answer that question. Why did I plot to kill myself to the point, and my daughter, who is grown, and we've had a lot of discussions about it. And she asked me, well, you know, why would you do it? You, you had a career. You were very successful. You know, you'd know, you come out of the South. I was the first person in my family on either side ever to go to college. Why would you do this? And I said, people don't understand depression. They don't understand mental health in this country. And I don't want to take this, you know, you probably want to keep me lighthearted, but uh, so I plotted how I could commit suicide without it being considered a suicide. And so I was gonna go to a Broncos game in California. I was suffering from bad depression. I had a bad psychiatrist who gave me everything I wanted. He was so excited to have me come once a week and discuss my life, because he had in, in their adolescents who had been sent there by schools, uh, divorced wives who would be sitting in the sitting room when I came in, they were crying. And I think it was a breath of fresh air, honestly, That this psychiatrist. Mentioned. And he gave me antidepressants. I told him I had, uh, I thought I was suffering from depression. And he gave me every upper and downer that you mm. could possibly have. I mean, he, he did. I'd go in and I'd say, I can't sleep at night. Okay, I'll give you Xanax. Okay, uh, in the morning, I'd feel sleepy. Okay, I'll give you Riddler. Uh, in the middle of the day, I'd, I'm, I'm too wired up. Okay, I'll give you this by late afternoon i want to start drinking well take this instead and so i was uh what i considered i grew up with elvis i considered myself a modern day elvis that i was on prescription drugs but i was on seven or eight of them a day right and i couldn't figure out how to get off them and so i was going to go to napa valley and drink for two or three days before the broncos game and then uh, drive over to the Pacific Ocean and swim out till I couldn't swim back, which I've since heard is like the worst way you can die, drowning.
1: It yeah, doesn't sound very good.
0: And the day before I was going, uh, a friend of mine said, you know, you don't seem right. And behind my back, he called my doctor and my doctor put me in the hospital. Well, I knew why. I, I knew why the Broncos football player killed himself. He was suffering depression. So I knew I could answer the question, and I did. I answered it in a column of you know i'm an example of somebody that was within hours of killing myself and, and it turned out to experienced... be a
1: misdiagnosis right you you were suffering from depression yeah. because of diabetes which was not allowing serotonin to your brain
0: absolutely you you diagnosed it completely right so i was being diagnosed wrong they weren't even addressing what the cause was and i think that's true with so many people mm-hmm. that's why we have the mental health P- people automatically assume well, well He's crazy. you know. That, that's his immediate reaction. He's crazy. Or why would he do that? Well, there's a reason why. So uh, I wrote that column. It got, um, the only thing that surprised me was the response. I mean, it was you know, hundreds of thousands of responses. Right. People like uh, Mike Huckabee asked me to come on his show. I didn't think that would ever come about. I was on probably 100 shows. And I thought, you know, at least now you kind of need to spread the word and try to and get involved, and, and I did. And I got involved in the state here, and I got involved nationally, and reality kind of joined me in in that. And, and it's continued to be along with my, I lost my sister and my mother to cancer, so between cancer and my dad's lifelong fight with diabetes and my own fight, struggles with diabetes. So those are my three areas that I concentrate in, is suicide prevention and cancer and diabetes treatments and so it, people saw another side of me i don't think they'd ever seen and there was no negative feedback and did i think about it no it was just an immediate reaction like like you and i might have most any subject right. subject you address all the time on social media or in your personal and your professional life that i just wasn't going to sit there and write about it without there was no way to write about it without saying i know why he did it
1: time for a quick break And then more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Tissot is the official watch of the NBA. Each one of Tissot's timepieces delivers quality performance and traditional luxury. The Tissot Chrono XL is a great watch for those looking for a sporty chronograph with Swiss technology at an unbeatable price. While the Tissot PR100 family of watches brings together sporty and feminine details for a collection that's bold, romantic, and ideal for the modern woman. Shop Tissot at us.tissotshop.com and at select watch and jewelry stores nationwide. That's what she said. So you stick around in this business long enough as you have, and you're going to have these high peaks of things that are vast successes, and there's going to be low moments. You spend a lot of time giving opinions and talking. You're obviously going to piss some people off. Is there something that you said or did at any point in your career that at the time you felt completely on the right side of things, and you look back now and you regret it or you say, I understand why that was a problem?
0: In terms of writing, yes. I knew a quarterback named Norris Weiss. He's the late Norris Weiss. And at one point, he was with the Denver Broncos, and I was close with him and his wife. They came out of the South, uh, Mississippi, where my family came from, and I, I got to know them. And I wrote a column saying he should be traded. And I regretted that. But it was the right thing to do. But I regretted it. Here's what I regretted about it. I couldn't become close to players. I can't be a fan of any team. Nobody believes that. I'm not a fan of any team, including Tennessee. I'm not a fan of the Broncos. I'm not a fan of – I just like uh, – you know this. You've heard this. Bill Plasky and I say it all the time. What do you pull for? You pull for yourself. You pull for good stories. Uh-huh. You pull for overtimes, playoffs in golf. I pull for great finishes that uh, covered 12-14 Olympics. And I pulled for great stories. Uh, I made a vow to myself a long time ago that I just wouldn't be a fan and I wouldn't uh, involve that in my decisions. And the, the column about Norris Weeks and his wife called me and said, You don't know that Norris is sick, and you know, and you at this, and you were our friend, and we had you at our house. And I went, I can't even be friends with athletes, and I haven't been. And so that's one of the regrets. And I regret having written that because his friendship was stronger than the column. Yeah. So, so uh, yeah, I regret a lot of things that I've written over the years, but you try to learn from it. Right. And I think, you know, I've, I've written probably 10,000 columns and I've, uh, you know, I regret blackboard quotes. I, I, I don't know if that's true of you. It's almost a question for you. I don't get to the shows very quickly that we do the around the horn and you and I, end up being on a lot of shows together and i on the way home and when i get home it doesn't matter whether i won or lost it matters to me if i did a good job of trying to explain myself and that people at home might get what i'm saying i mean you know when i'm being light and frivolous and stuff like that but it bothers me every column i write i'm bothered did i write the right stuff it would be true of Ask who's one of best wives in the world, Bob Ryan. It'd be true of you, Kate Fagan, who's written books and,
1: yeah, I and, think and it's, all of them. It's the all writing. Us, I think you're. There's editing there for writing, whereas on a show like Around the Horn, the speed with which you try to get out the thing you want sometimes means you don't say exactly what you meant, and you don't have the opportunity to correct it and and rephrase it the way you would on, say, radio, where you've got time to kind of get back to what you meant. So occasionally, yeah, there are times when I say something and it becomes uh, something I have to explain or I I was misunderstood. Um, With writing, usually there's a chance for you or an editor to step in, and I have to ask you, you – are somebody whose brain goes on these, you know, paths and finds a new topic and you always wind your way back when you're writing a story. Do you have to, is it difficult to edit yourself? Do you do the same thing when you're writing that you do when you're talking? Uh,
0: no, I think it's entirely different. And it's a want of better word trade or craft. I don't consider it an art form. I don't think anything I've ever done was an art form. I appreciate. And if you were to see my place, I, and this would sort of amaze people. There's nothing in here that tells I'm involved with sports. The only thing that I have that connects me to anything is, is I have a collection of Kurt Vonnegut novels and memorabilia from Kurt Vonnegut because he was the guy. He was the writer. I styled myself afterward, and I thought he was and, – and he's been described. as either Mark Twain, Kurt Vonnegut, or uh, maybe Ernest Hemingway, the great American novelist. And so I, I don't really identify with sports or So it's craft. What I do on television is sometimes crap and sometimes (laughs) craft. And what I do in writing, I'm so concerned about the language I love that I try my best to not only appreciate the language, but play with it some. And I know that's not going to sound right, but I really enjoy taking the English language and trying to do something that I think is smart or intelligent or different. And what bothers me, and you didn't take me there, but what bothers me, there's there's a lot of great reporters and writers, and I don't put down millennials or any other young generational groups because of their writing style but we've forgotten about writing <laughs> and that's and and I think I would agree with other people who are old timers that are on the show that I I've always appreciated the language but the language has been lost because of social media because it's not important or, or the idea of clickbaits and stuff like that you're an exceptional outstanding writer and I consider myself I'm not, as, as people go, oh, you get to go to sports. I'm a writer writing about sports. And I tell this to colleges I speak at, that I don't know that Van Gogh ever loved fruit or flowers, but he loved painting. And that just happened to be his subject matter. And that goes back to me not being a fan, that I, I'm a fan of writing. And I've never been good enough. And that's that's probably would have led to more depression for me. That I, I, I just saw a documentary or an interview, Dan Rather interviewing uh, Billy Bob Thornton. Mm-hmm. Thornton said something, and he's a kid from the South. He grew up poor, like I did. And it goes back to what you started with about you know feelings of growing up in the South and what your background was. And he loved to write and read when he was a poor kid in Arkansas. And he came to Memphis to try to be a rock and roll star and ended up being an actor and a writer and a director and everything else in the world. He said his biggest worry in life is he'll never be as good as he wanted to be. And that's right. kind of where I am. It's I mean, the plague
1: I, of many I, artists. And the problem is, yeah. is that some then don't create at all or they limit what they create while other people who are not nearly so self-critical or self-aware put out things into the world that get swallowed up because they exist. And if you're waiting for perfection and you don't create anything, there's nothing for anyone Yeah. I just find it's, it's it
0: interesting. And, and, I, and I wonder about you. I just find it interesting that uh, my legacy is going to be a blackboard and being the silly uncle or whatever I am on around a round of horn when really that's as far away from what I really wanted to be in terms of just being a really good writer.
1: Do you use the silliness to escape uh, accountability for how great or good you are? Like, are you afraid of being seen and judged as one thing? So you offer up this other thing so that if it doesn't work out, you can always fall back on being the silly uncle?
0: I wouldn't describe it that way. When I approach something, I want to be as good and unique as I can be. I go into every experience. I have a mantra, which is have fun. And that's when every time I sit down with a column, I go, have fun. Even if it's a serious subject, have fun. Every time I do a show, I say to myself, right before we go on the air, have fun today. Well, when we started doing Around the Horn, and they didn't really know what it was going to be, the people who were on it thought it was going to be the sports reporters, a daily version of the sports reporters. And we met at Carnegie Deli in New York, and Max Kellerman started telling us uh, all about the Yankees and boxing, and I finally stopped him about 10 minutes into this diatribe and said, Max, you apparently have me confused with someone who gives a shit about what you're talking about. <laughs> and Bill Wolf, who was the producer of the show, said, that's the show. And I think that Jay Mariotti and Bob Ryan and Tim Kalashaw and three or four others in that meeting went, what? Kalashaw was quoted as saying, and those guys have all the fun, that none of those guys could understand why I was on the show. Right. And they found out two weeks later, I'm quoting Tim, this is not me, but Tim said, we found out what he was the show. And Mm -hmm. so what was interesting is then those guys started developing personalities. Ryan went out of his comfort zone. He was not, he was. Well,
1: I guess I wonder then why you say it's so far from how you want to be seen, because that's a choice you're making to be sort of silly uncle, to to be lighthearted and have fun with it and and have it be about taking fun shots back and forth with other panelists. That seems very natural to me. That seems like who you are. So I'm curious as to why you say it's as as far away as from how you wanted to be seen as possible.
0: Well, I think it's far away from what who I am, and so it's it's you know you you're now doing what the psychiatrist didn't do. <laughs> I guess giving me therapy here. But uh, <laughs> do you really think that uh, Jerry Lewis wanted to be such a clown in, in, throughout his career? that you find your level and you go, this is what I am. I mean, this is what I'm at. I can't be, I felt like Kate felt uncomfortable, and she's not here. to I didn't think Kate was always very comfortable on a round horn mm-hmm. because we drug her, and maybe you're the same way. We dragged her into areas where she had to be, she wanted to be really serious about her career and her profession. And I think I can say it about her since, uh, you know, I wrote about her in college. So, and I tried to help her along the way, but she never left her comfort zone. I, I don't know that, uh, uh, I think Bob has left his a little bit when he comes on around the horn. He's a different, he was a different type of journalist on the sports reporter serious all the time. Getting back to me, there was a famous book about the uh, first ringing brother's clown, and he didn't want to be a clown. He he wanted to be taken seriously. I think it's called A Man of a Thousand Faces. Mm -hmm. And this is what I am. So I am it, and I guess I embrace it, but it's not what I really set out to do. I mean, I I set out to be Mike Orko. (laughs) I wanted to change. I wanted to do something to help people. Again, great writers. Robert Penn Warren, who wrote All the King's Men about the governor of Louisiana, and I I, I, I have gone to Cuba and sat on Hemingway's front porch for hours, and I know this doesn't sound like me, but I've sat on there for hours thinking about how I could try and emulate Ernest Hemingway. Well, that's what I think about. The show is entertainment. I don't think that uh, that they just did live shows of uh, all in the family, and I don't think that that acting crew really wanted to be what they were meathead, wanted to be characterized as that in his life. But it, it's part of my life. I mean, it's made me whatever I am. You know, 50 people, they come up to me. A guy came up to me the other day, though. A group of people were in the line to say hello. And he said, I hate pardon interruption. I said, well, that's too bad. And he said, I think you're terrible on it. And I said, well, I'm not on pardon interruption. <laughs> people no, always mistake
1: the two it. shows. Always. yeah. 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 yeah.
0: And he said, I want to get a, a selfie with you. And I said, you hate the show. You don't like me. <laughs> Why? He said, I want I want to send this to all my friends so that I had a picture with you. And a guy next to me who was waiting, looked at him and said, get out of here, ass. Right. <laughs> and that kind of keeps you humble because all the people right. who come up and go, I love you on TV and stuff like that. And I was well, on it's a plane. topic for
1: another time, but I think it's yeah. a common feeling, and actually Brian Koppelman, who's the co-creator of Billions, was on the podcast talking about being a shadow artist, which is essentially you align yourself as near as you can to the thing that you most want, but you don't have the confidence to do it full heartedly. And so you do something else and you become quite good at that. And the question is, does that fulfill you? And are you allowed to then say, this is what I was meant to be instead of my original dream? Or are you constantly thinking to yourself, I wish I would just go really try at the thing I wanted. And that's a decision everyone has to make is either, either you say I was never meant to be Royco. I meant to be Woody Page, which is a different kind of creator. Or you say, I don't want to be seen as the silly uncle and I'm going to reassert myself in the direction of what I always wanted if that's truly what you need to fulfill you. And that's what a lot of artists go through.
0: Well, I'm not certain that I know what will fulfill me. I mean, my, my dream in the last 15, 20 years is to write novels and I've, I've got one that I'm polishing. Uh, yeah, I, I after I get through the column, I'm assuming you have more than 30 minutes to write it. Uh, I go back and... I go away for a while and come back and look at it as writers should do, but uh, newspaper business—what it's lost more than anything—subscribers, but it lost editors. Yeah, uh, there was a great story. A, a newspaper started called PM in New York City, and their solution to hiring was to hire the best thirty or forty writers from other new York newspapers, the New York Herald and the Times, and and the Daily News. And they found out five, six weeks later, they didn't hire any uh, editors. They thought they could self edit. And they had to go out and hire 25 to 30 editors because they found out the writers couldn't edit themselves. That always stuck with me. I can't edit myself, but newspapers have fired editors, desk editors, people who edit. Every newspaper, that's who they're laying off. They don't lay lay off as many writers as they lay off editors. People that are supposed to edit your, your copy. And what they've lost is editing. Uh, that's been lost in, in all of journalism. It's, there's nobody really, I, I shouldn't say it, but there's nobody really editing what I write and say, oh, boy, this would be a better lead, or just, this is more important. You should get it up higher. And, and I miss that. I miss someone editing me, and I miss that uh, I can't do a better job of editing myself and Wouldn't it be sad that I really want to go, you know, I sound like every journalist ever, but I I want to finish. I've written nine books, a couple of them with Bob Ryan, and I'd like to go off and write not the great American novel, but just some good American novels. And I'm also fearful, to say it out loud, I'm also fearful that I wouldn't be very good at it.
1: (laughs) Back with more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain in just a minute. Is there something that's interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, grief, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. Anything you share is confidential and it's so convenient. You can now get help at your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time, no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option, and my listeners get 10% off your first month just by using the discount code SPAIN. So why not get started today? Go to BetterHelp.com SPAIN. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. BetterHelp.com SPAIN. That's what she said. I really want to get to this story that I heard, which was hilarious to me. And and I, and I imagine that the early days of Around the Horn and finding itself is very different than it is now, but in a lot of ways similar as well. But I heard you telling a story about the old days of being on with Jay Mariotti, and you intentionally would call him by the wrong name and rile him up. Can you tell that story?
0: Yes, but I'll hear from him again. He got so upset. When he heard that I told this story somewhere else. Oh,
1: he won't listen to this. It's a woman hosting it, and he's already made his uh, opinions clear about women uh, hosting anything involving radio, so. Uh,
0: when they told me that we're going to do the show that It's going to be a compliment to pardon interruption, it's going to go on, I said, what's it going to be? Well, we're working on the idea, and we want you to be, because I had done a lot of stuff for ESPN on ESPN Classic, and they liked my sort of unique viewpoint, or funny, or whatever it might have been. So anyway... He said, you have any other ideas? I said, Jay Mariotti, uh, that would make for some good TV. And I mentioned three or four other people, and we started the show. And Mariotti just wanted to chew on me every day, and I'd just deflect what he said. And I started calling him Richard. And I didn't think anybody <laughs> at ESPN ever watched the show, which I'm sure it was true. And the guy who actually uh, oversaw the show called me one day, and he said, why do you call Mariotti Richard and I said because I can't call him Dick <laughs> I'm laughing at my own story that, that was, and nobody ever even knew what it was all about he didn't know and so the guy's name was Jim the vice president of, of ESPN and he said well, don't call him that anymore It's okay so the next day I called Mariotti Jim <laughs> I got a call from ESPN saying why are you calling him Jim I said, because you're an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) And if I can't call him Richard, I'm going to call him Jim. You can't call him Jim. So I then started calling him Jabroni. And he complained (laughs) to ESPN that that was an Italian slur word. Jabroni is the guy who carries the star in wrestling. Anybody who ever watched wrestling knows Hulk Hogan or whoever he might be. Right. Any other guys are stiff that they bring in. He does all the moves. He's the one that goes over the top rope and everything else. He is called in wrestling a jabroni. It's not a slur. Yeah,
1: he, he loses to make the other ones look better.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. His whole job is we're paying you $1,000. You make the other guy look like a star. Make him look like he's really good because Hulk Hogan couldn't wrestle a lick. But he would make, be made good by the jabroni. So I called him that, and he went off on that. So <laughs> God, that I can't it. imagine so I, those
1: days because I know he also used to leave voicemails for Reality when he would lose a show, explaining the, the points he should have gotten. And uh, even though we all understand that it's 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 secular, you're not going to win every time. Uh, so I, I can only imagine the back and forth between you two wrangling, hurting cats, as they say, would be trying to get you both. Yeah, on the same I, page. and
0: I th- I really enjoyed it. I mean, he he went off the edge, but I. I thought that kind of made the show. I mean, uh, Part of Interruption has a has a real character kingdom there with two guys that had argued sports for so long, and it's so natural to them. And Tony's stepped a bit out of character. I mean, he's more in my direction than anybody else that I think you're on the two shows. But you're on the Levitard show, and there's a degree of humor that's attached right. to that show. And I think people kind of lose that, that that's what we're trying to do is not only inform you. This is the history of journalism. We're trying to inform you and educate you and entertain you. Those are the three issues here. Even with the entertainment value, you're still trying to inform people and to educate them. And that's what we're doing. And that's yeah. what I'm trying to do. That's and, the fun of
1: it, is the trash talking along with the, with the fact yeah. giving. That's why I like it the most. Hey, Woody, I got to let you go. But before, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. That's right. It's time for the Spanish Inquisition, which is brought to you by Tissot. Tissot, the official watch of the NBA. Shop at us.tissoshop.com. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the questions everybody gets and nobody expects. It's a speed round of sorts. Number one, what's the desert island album you would take? You can only have one album on a desert island.
0: The uh, Double-Sided White Album by the Beatles, because would nice. have extra 16 songs.
1: That's very smart. Number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success?
0: Sense of self-effacing humor.
1: Hmm. Number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Marriage. <laughs> How many times?
0: Uh, Billy Bob Thornton said that he was married six times, so I feel like a pirate next to him.
1: There you go. There you go. Uh, number four, have you ever been in a fist fight?
0: Yes. As a freshman in high school, Tyke Thompson. And I tell this story years ago in Around the Round of Horn. Tykee Thompson was a sophomore. He bullied me, and I finally started fighting him, and the coach put us in, the, in a ring in the gym, and <laughs> Tyke swung at me, and I ducked, and I fell down, and I broke my ankle. And he called me the next day oh and he no. said, I'm sorry I broke your nose. And I said, you never hit me. Tykey. And so we talked about it one day on Round of Horn and one of the researchers found Tyke Thompson. Oh, my God. He they found him in life because that's a strange name.
1: Yeah. They found
0: Tyke Thompson and they interviewed him and he said, yes, the truth was he never hit me. So that's my <laughs> first fist fight.
1: Oh, that's funny. Um, number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Paul McCartney. Oh, good one. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been?
0: In Cincinnati, the night before a football game between the Bengals and the Broncos, a bunch of us are drinking, and uh, end of the evening, last call, we went out, there were four elevators, and uh, a lady of the evening came up, and she said, you guys looking for somebody to spend the night with you or be with you, and I said, what are we talking about, and she said, for $100, I'll go up to your room and do anything, and I said, okay, here's $100, go to my room and write a column in the sidebar. <laughs> <laughs> and Rick Riley made that line famous. because So anyway, That's, that was it. That doesn't
1: sound so much embarrassing as uh a...
0: Well, there's, there's another part of it. So I went off into the bathroom to pee, and I had drunkenly, mistakenly gone in the women's restroom. <laughs> and I, I noticed when there weren't a urinal, so I turned around to come back out. Uh, A group of women came in, I went into the stall, I stood on the toilet, and I thought, well, they'll be out of here in a minute. And uh, instead of them being out of there, another group came in. And I didn't quite know how to handle that moral dilemma, because there's no way I'm going to come out of that good. So I finally just (laughs) opened the door and I said, have a nice evening, ladies. And I I never came back. I never uh, never went back to the hotel or anywhere else, because they're probably still waiting for me. So that's right.
1: the most thing. <laughs> your photo's on the wall uh, number seven what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve
0: My workouts before I had a double hernia I was told recently I was the only person with a double hernia to win around the horn <laughs> uh, but I had a double hernia and I was working out every day and trying to get back to it I'd like for my uh, I'd really like to improve uh, my health at 72.
1: Uh, number eight, if you could be commissioned for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society had to adhere to?
0: Be kind to each other. Mm. I'm amazed. I, I just add one sense to that. Every time somebody lets me in the traffic, I lower the window and I wave, or I wave mm-hmm. out the side, and nobody ever does it. I mean, <laughs> whatever happened to civility?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, I, it's I, tougher I to I find, find every day. That's the
0: law saying there has to be civility. I don't care what your political views yep. are.
1: You and, uh, you and Aaron Sorkin and all the characters of the newsroom, That's uh, we're on a quest for civility. Um, yeah. Number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been?
0: That's the thing when I was uh, seven or eight years old. The original The Thing was the scariest movie I've ever seen in my life. I won't look at it today. And I spent about half the movie in the lobby, and my friends uh, were laughing at me. And the manager came up to me and he said, son, you either get back in that movie theater or you go home. And I couldn't go home because my mother took us. And I didn't want to go back in there. I thought, you <laughs> know, scariest I've ever been.
1: Um, number 10, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you?
0: Soft-spoken. <laughs> no. People don't know that. I'm the most you want people to
1: describe people. you as soft-spoken.
0: I want them to know that I'm soft-spoken. I, <laughs> I'm loud on TV and... People who are my friends, my girlfriend, have to tell me to speak up all the time. They said, how can you be so loud well on television? And not. It's all spoken. Uh, charitable. My daughter can't understand why I stop and give everybody on the side of the road a dollar or two dollars. Mm. And uh, a good guy. That's not one word. but uh, I'll
1: give it to you. Yeah. <laughs> And finally, the bonus, who would you recommend that I have on this podcast?
0: Billy Bob Thornton. I brought him up earlier, but I don't think people know about him. His dream was to be a major league shortstop in the Pittsburgh Pirates. Signed him, and he, and he tore his knee.
1: Mm. Yeah, he's an interesting interview. He's been on LeBetard a couple times.
0: Uh, he, he's really good. Who else would I recommend? The nicest guy I've ever interviewed, uh, Jeff Bridges.
1: Oh, Jeff Bridges.
0: Jeff Bridges is the nicest guy He's I ever also a f- interviewed.
1: Fascinating after, interview.
0: After the show, because I used to do a radio talk show, after the show, we went and had uh, White Castles together.
1: <laughs> That's great. That's I would love to yeah. have him on. I should look into that. Thank you, Woody. I appreciate it. Thank you for the <laughs> invitation. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I ran about something that bothers me, and I fix it. This week, cheap umbrellas. What's the point even? Either don't sell an 8.99 umbrella at all, or sell me an 8.99 umbrella that lasts longer than the storm front I'm buying it to protect me from. I'm in Miami all week; it's supposed to rain all week, so I pop into one of the 10,000 surf style stores within a five block radius and I buy an 8.99 umbrella. I use it for 30 minutes, opening and closing it no more than four times, going into breakfast and out, into two stores and out, and finally when trying to close it to walk into the Clevelander to film HQ. Two of the little metal ribs connecting the shaft to the canopy part just up in collapse. Can't be fixed. Can't be used. Can't be opened. Can't even be closed in order to fit it into the garbage that I'm angrily trying to shove it into. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this. Because I get it. What do you expect from an eight ninety nine umbrella, you're asking me? I expect more than 30 minutes of use. Again... Don't even sell an $8.99 umbrella if it's not going to survive being opened and closed four times. And it wasn't even windy. It was a mild drizzle, and this mother bleeping piece of shit can't handle it. And now I feel guilty because I've just sent this worthless combination of metal and plastic and nylon right into a landfill after freaking 30 minutes of using it, which is a great waste of time, space, factory worker labor, packaging, shipping, not to mention a good hair that I was having until it stopped working, Thank goodness my hotel had a real umbrella to lend me for the day. All right, I feel good about what we accomplished today. Either make a goddamn eight ninety nine umbrella that lasts longer than my morning bowel movement or charge more and improve the quality. There, I fixed it. Listener dilemmas are brought to you by ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. This week, we've got two very similar listener dilemmas, both involving bathroom etiquette. Wildosaurus Rex says, The person I'm dating literally crinkles their toothpaste instead of rolling it up to get the rest out like a normal person. Cut all ties now and walk away or grin and bear it. And Evan Flay writes, wife insists on hanging the hand towel in the bathroom so that it's dangling off the hook by a thread so that it can, quote, dry out properly. If this isn't a red flag for some kind of sociopathic tendency, I don't know what is. For what it's worth, I choose to use every part of the towel hook. All right, let's start with the first one. I myself am a toothpaste crinkler. I didn't choose that life. The life chose me. I've tried to fix it and I can't get it through my head. My poor, definitely not billionaire husband has to unwrinkle it and roll every time. It is admittedly a divorceable offense, but I say if you mention that it bugs you a few times and it never changes, just suck it up and accept that there are far worse habits your lover could have. As for the towels, I too hang them on either a hook by a thread or even over the top of the shower door or towel hook evenly spread out, not because I'm a sociopath, but because that does, in fact, get a better and more thorough dry. Sir, the photo you provided of your towel etiquette, aka cramming it onto a hook in a jumbled mess, was frankly disturbing. It looked ripe for mold and was a technique last seen used by a five-year-old. Get your life together or prepare to be left with just cause. There, I fixed it. (laughs) If you got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me, at Sarah Spain, or go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review, and leave the dilemma in your review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.